All right. Joining me for this one is Greg Christopher, Xavier's Vice President for Administration and Director of Athletics. Greg, it's been a handful of years since we've done a podcast, but there's a, a lot of change going on right now at, at Xavier and specifically with the men's basketball program. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, giving me a little bit of your time. I know you're very busy. Absolutely, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it, like I said, it's been a while since uh, we've done this. And in that time, you've been promoted, your title changed. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of other things, but if you don't mind talking about yourself for a second, what are your big focuses now with, with your job and what you're doing on a day-to-day basis? Sure, Rick. I, I guess my day job hasn't changed ultimately. Uh, I, I'm still athletics director and and that's certainly where my focus is. But uh, several years ago, uh, as John Kusha retired, um, Father Graham uh, uh, basically pulled me aside and, and reminded me of a conversation we had actually when uh, I was interviewing here about uh, interests in uh, other areas of campus. So uh, the short version is I've picked up uh, a piece of what uh, John's old portfolio was. So I've got uh, athletics, human resources, and then also the campus um, external side, so marketing and communications. Uh, but uh, as I said, uh, my day job is certainly athletics director. Uh, I, I probably uh, am involved in those other two areas at a more of a strategic level. Uh, there's great leadership in in both of those areas with Jenny Dramus and uh, Doug Rushman. Well, I think probably the highest profile part of your job that most fans realize is when there is a coaching change in the men's <laughs> basketball program, no a lot of that falls on you to, to make that decision and make a new hire. How unique of a process was it this spring to, to rehire a coach that had already been at Xavier? And how did the university's familiarity with him impact that process? Yeah, Rick, that was a, uh, what, a wild month. Uh, in, in many ways, um, I, I've said to a few people, it'll be worth two chapters in my book uh, someday. Uh, but uh, no, you, you know, you go into those situations uh, and look at a lot of emotion um, uh, involved uh, for a lot of different reasons. But uh, uh, as we entered the search, uh, you had, uh, you know, probably 20 to 25 candidates on a piece of paper, like, uh, you know, like you always do. Uh, ultimately, you know, not surprising that piece of paper had a bunch of names down one side and then one name on the other side, uh, because Sean just looked so different than all the other candidates uh, that uh, that were realistic for, uh, for Xavier. And I've said this many times that I think uh, given what Sean had been through the last, uh, I guess it's probably approaching what, seven years, more than five years, certainly now uh, out at Arizona, there there were so many people on the Xavier side that spoke to Sean's credibility uh, and that that probably opened the door. And then as you looked into you know the circumstances out at Arizona, beginning with book and and then continuing through the entire NCAA investigation. Uh, at this point, um, time in some ways helped uh, because the record uh, was the record that, you know, there, there was no uncertainty with what we were getting ourselves into. And, uh, uh, you know, some of that record uh, is accurate. So then there's a fair amount of it that's not accurate. That was just uh, at this point speculation that had, you know, again, been able to play itself out. 
but I don't know that there's too many people in the United States that have had their lives, uh, you know, upended the way Sean has uh, the last several years. So it's all out there and and very public. And he was uh, he was very candid and straightforward with us through the process, uh, as were his attorneys. So we felt like we were able to do our due diligence going through this. We know what we're getting into uh, with the uh, the hearing, uh, the IARP hearing that uh, the University of Arizona had to go through uh, in August. And uh, uh, but a short version again is we're we're ultimately excited for the long term uh, with where Xavier's program's headed. Is there any types of updates or anything else you can add about that that hearing at this point, or is it pretty much just a wait and see? Situation? At this point, it's wait and see, Rick. Uh, you know, the hearing was in in August, and I thought it went uh, about as expected. Um, I'm not going to get into the prediction, um, you know, game at this point. Uh, it is wait and see. Uh, there were three, if I believe I'm accurate on this, there were three IARP hearings this summer, uh, Memphis, Louisville, and then Arizona in that order. So uh, the only prediction I would say um, for what it's worth is that the, the results of each of those hearings will probably be announced in that order. And I think last week we saw the Memphis uh, um, results or maybe sometime in the last 10 days. So I would guess we'll see Louisville next and then, and then Arizona. Most of the analysts, experts, prognosticators, that I've heard or or read from are sharing a similar opinion about the hire, which is that Xavier hit a home run and now has one of the top coaches, if not the top coach in the Big East Conference. What do you think of when you hear endorsements like that? Do you, do you even notice it? Do you care at all? Well, I mean, that's that's frankly what we expect, right? I mean, when we went back to the process in, in March, uh, again, as you're looking at all the candidates, uh, there, there was only one candidate who had more than 400 uh, career wins, and that's uh, that's Sean Miller. And that's why, uh, to some degree, it was a horse race in the in the hiring process, uh, yeah, because uh, there were uh, so several institutions, you know, talking uh, talking with Sean. Uh, but ultimately, again, uh, that stood out in a lot of different ways, and that familiarity both ways probably uh, probably worked and probably helped uh, in both cases. What has stood out to you about Sean Miller in the brief time that you've been around him? I think one of the thing that you know, I, I had met Sean a couple of times when we played them uh, out in out in San Jose and then Los Angeles, uh, but I, I certainly didn't know Sean. Um, uh, but again, a lot of people you know spoke to his credibility as we started the process. Um, what is um, I don't think getting mentioned frequently enough is that uh, uh, not just Sean but our entire staff um, held this roster together. Uh, and in this uh, day and age of, uh, you know, the transfer portal um, to, to keep this roster, the nucleus of this roster together, uh, I think has been a tremendous feat. And uh, it puts us in position to be successful right out of the gate. Well, I know given what I do, and I'm sure on your side of things, I've already felt that that buzz, the hype, the excitement coming from the fan base. Um, just given subscriptions and more people wanting to engage about the program right now. Have you guys felt that from a, a ticket sales perspective or otherwise? Uh, I, you're right. I, I feel that same energy and excitement and, uh, and, and it is fun to see, uh, 
so we're, I, I don't know what our last count is, but you're right. Uh, you know, Rick, we're up over 8,000 uh, season tickets for the year. Um, and uh, uh, we've actually been over 8,000 season tickets. I think it was the 1819 season where we crossed that threshold and have stayed there. And uh um, look, it's one of the great things about this program is, is our fan base. Uh, you know, the, the Xavier men's basketball was built on, on a lot of things, including great players, uh, you know, tremendous coaches, uh, but we've got an incredibly loyal, generous and, uh, uh, excited fan base. So we're, we're ready for November. In addition to that, you guys are always updating, innovating, improving different things at the CentOS, different things for the game day experience. Are there any notable changes that fans need to be aware of heading into this year? Going into this season, I, I don't know that there's going to be a, a ton of changes that people will see. The video board was probably the most dramatic thing uh, last year, but you're right, Rick. We, uh, we've we taken the approach in updating CentOS Center over the last, uh, what, probably six to seven years of of trying to take small bites out of the elephant um, with the, the renovation, probably close to $30 million in, in work to keep CentOS up to date. But uh, you can only do that because the, the facility has great bones and it's a, uh, you know, it's a tremendous uh, college basketball arena and a great home court advantage uh, for our teams. Probably the last thing in the building that hasn't been touched through all of this work are, are uh, the suites that we've got there at Concord level and and so we are developing some plans uh for the um uh for the suites that we'll probably finalize in the next few months and get after those next summer uh but the 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 probably the most notable change right outside my window here uh is the uh, Klee camp training center uh that's uh being worked on fans won't necessarily see that but what a huge upgrade it'll be for uh for our teams uh here at Xavier uh, we've um, uh, we've had congestion really ever since uh, all three of the teams that, that that make Xavier or make the CentOS Center home um, have really turned into 12 month a year operations, uh, and to have only two courts uh, has has caused some level of congestion. So that'll be done around Christmas time. And, and the thing that's getting probably the most attention is the extra practice court. But I tell you what our coaches are most excited about is the, the, uh, um, the addition to the strength and uh, strength conditioning training center that's going on ne right next to the, uh, the practice court. It's all part of the same uh, project. But uh, when that's all done, it'll increase the uh, strength and conditioning space by probably 30%. And, and hands down, we'll have the nicest weight room and, and training center in college basketball. And that, I mean, you had guys that just built that training center that you had a handful of years ago it seemed like you, you just say just up, right? yeah it's uh, it's now uh six years old so wow, uh, hard to believe amazing how uh time flies but uh nevertheless again it'll it'll be uh, a great addition and i know andy kettler is uh is excited to get his uh his uh fingerprints on that what about schmidt Fieldhouse? what's going on with that building <laughs> <laughs> I love Schmidt Fieldhouse and uh, it, it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, I, I think long term, uh, there's not much hope for that, uh, that facility. If you go not just to Schmidt, but really that entire West campus, there's a, 
I would say the intersections of things that'll happen there are um, there's some campus work to the hillside uh, that really runs from the north end where baseball is all the way to the south where soccer is. And then we uh, so an intersection with the campus work, uh, our fundraising efforts to redo the grandstand at baseball and some soccer work, uh, soccer and lacrosse now. Uh, and then when all that happens, I think Schmidt Fieldhouse will uh, will uh, be taken down. Um, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, we looked into doing a renovation of it probably about five years ago. And eh, probably now about six or seven years ago, and the starting point was going to be more than thirty million dollars, and uh, I can't even imagine what it would be today. So, uh, unfortunately, it's not on the priority list. Understandable. <laughs> we're we're uh, uh, over a year now into the name, image, and likeness era of NCAA athletics, and as you're talking about needing donations and building these facilities and all of that, my mind naturally shifts to the NIL stuff because you know, a lot of that times. The money's going to be needed to pull from the same places, you would think. How much has that impacted what you guys are doing and how much can you really do in the name, image and likeness space, given the NCAA's restrictions? Sure, Rick. I, I would say I'll start at 60,000 feet and kind of go down and uh, from there. And, and this may lead to some tangents in our conversation, but I'll, I'll start by saying uh, philosophically, we certainly support and agree with uh, name, image and likeness, the, the opportunity for the student athletes to have really the same opportunities that our students have, uh, again, uh, agree with. Is it perfect right now? Probably not. Uh, it, but we're also seeing like a real-time marketplace uh, figure itself out uh, in some ways. And uh, uh, so that would be one point. Second point would be uh, what we've, the way we kind of characterize name, image, and likeness at Xavier is our student athletes have um, three, what I would call buckets of opportunities, um, and, and, and fans don't always realize again, kind of the, the division, you know, the first would be apparel, you know, for the first time you can go up to our bookstore here and, and you can buy, um, our, our players with their, uh, their name jerseys with their, the players' names on them. And, uh, uh, so the same way, if you go to a Reds game and you buy a Joey Votto jersey and, and Votto gets a percentage of those sales, if you go to our bookstore and buy jerseys, uh, our, our players receive a percentage of that through a group licensing arrangement, the same as the, the pro sports. So that would be one. Second would be camps and clinics. You know, we've got golfers giving golf lessons now, baseball players giving little kids uh, hitting lessons. Our basketball teams have done uh, camps and, and again, they can uh, earn money off of that. Uh, and then bucket three would be the more traditional endorsements, whether it be uh, work for not profit, not for profits or, or you know, corporate endorsement uh, opportunities. All told, if we've got 300 plus athletes, probably half of them have had NIL opportunities in the first year. Um, and I think the total aggregate number is uh, approaching $600,000 now that our student athletes have, uh, have earned. Um, you mentioned the NCAA. Ohio actually is governed by uh, an executive order. So, so really it's state law that governs us. The NCAA um, legislation, I guess would be the, the word applies to states that don't have a state law and we have a state law and, and we think it's a good one in the sense that it allows us to be um, aware and involved to a degree. We can't pay our players directly, 
but we can facilitate. And then our, our student athletes actually provide us uh, we're a central clearinghouse so that as they do deals, uh, our compliance director, Leslie Fields, is the, the point person on that. She's not determining what deals they can do, can't do. And she's certainly not a lawyer. And she makes our student athletes aware of that, um, you know, not determining uh, what's a good deal, what's a bad deal. But at least we we know what's going on from that standpoint. But it's here to stay. Um, again, supportive of it. Uh, I think in real time, we're going to have to figure it out. Uh, and, um, you know, the recruiting inducement piece, uh, which has been highly publicized, you know, with like Nigel Pack and and things like that, uh, that's where it gets problematic. And we're um, we're very explicit with our coaching staffs, what they can say, what they can't say to the point of even providing scripts almost in a way. Uh, and uh, so far, that's been uh, that's been useful and beneficial for our coaches. Well, even just right there, you mentioned that there's different rules depending on what state you're in, essentially, and how this all works. That's crazy. To me, me, that feels like the biggest issue here is, I mean, you know, as well as I do, the different rules when it comes to recruiting or what coaches are allowed to do on a court or what day you're allowed to start practice even sometimes gets interpreted different ways by different compliance departments. So when you're talking about something like this that seems so significant and changes fundamentally how you're going to recruit players... It's kind of wild that not not only are they probably going to be interpreted differently by different schools and different compliance departments, but they don't even have the same rules at every school because it depends on what state you're in. Yeah, exactly, Rick. And that's why, um, and this will put people to sleep if we get into this conversation <laughs> too much, but I, I think we're ultimately through the some some combination of the transformation committee work. Uh, you, you know, with some of these bills that have been introduced in Congress, we're headed towards some sort of national uh, framework or legislation around college athletics. And and I wouldn't be surprised if NIL gets kind of grabbed up in that just to standardize things uh, across the board, because right now uh, you've got, um, I think about two thirds of the states have their own legislation. Uh, so you can imagine that combined with the NCAA, you, you've got um, different rules for different states, and that's not a healthy thing long-term. Do you feel like there's a little bit of a race to figure this all out and get it more solidified and stable before the government steps in again and, and makes even more sweeping changes? So that's that's kind of the um, overarching sentence that as we headed into the Transformation Committee work, uh, um, that was used a lot. You know, this is our last chance to kind of get it right. I think we're at a point, um, at least some of the signals that we're getting from Congress is that it's really not an if, but a when. Uh, and, and you've got, uh, you know, various uh, senators and, and uh, representatives, you know, Cory Booker's probably gotten the most attention. Tommy Tuberville even got some attention with his, uh, his foray into this. Um, uh, last in the last couple of weeks. So I, I think once we get through midterms uh, in November, you know, whether it be late fourth quarter or first quarter, you'll start to see uh, some coalescing around uh, around some sort of government framework that uh, sits around college athletics in some way. But that's why what we're doing on the Transformation Committee uh, we're, we're probably trying to stay in lockstep with what's being proposed, but with the most significant legislation that's out there. 
I want to switch gears a little bit here to talk about the Big East Conference because you're talking about these different committees you're on, and I know you've been on the the planning committees for the Big East. You've been in conversations about the future of the conference and the NCAA at large. The reshuffling of college athletics again this year, it's led to questions about the future of the conference. Let me start with expansion. What do you think the likelihood is that the conference would look to expand in the near future? It's hard to predict, Rick. I, I'll start here when it comes to our conference or any any of the leagues when it, when it deals with expansion. At the Power Five level, in my opinion, one person's opinion here, I, I still think expansion or or changes are are largely being driven by television. Uh, at least that's that seems to be the appearance. Less so when you get beyond the Power Five. Um, so we've got. I think it's two plus years left. Uh, our TV deal ends at the end of the 25 season. So if you use that analogy, I, I do think that over the next couple of years, as we approach our next gate uh, around television, will we have the conversation about expansion? I think we will. Um, and what that looks like, it's really tough tough to predict, but there's certainly nothing imminent. There's nothing on the table. Um, and there's no conversations going on in this moment tied to big East and expansion. But, um, I think, you know, we're a basketball driven conference. That's, that's certainly no surprise. So uh, anything we do is going to be in, uh, you know, largely driven by the basketball space when it comes to expansion, but our big, our big tumblers that we'd have to think about are, are television, uh, you know, which is coming up in a couple of years. And then the Madison Square Garden contract, which is further out. I think we've got another seven or eight years, uh, at least on the MSG contract. Bringing those two things up real quick. I mean, how, how much conversation is there right now in terms of the next TV deal and re-upping with Madison Square Garden again in the future? So MSG again is further out. So I don't think there's any conversation that's necessary or, or is anything going on there, but certainly it's the, it's the, you know, perfect site for a conference tournament. So I, I think long-term we'll always want to be at MSG when it comes to TV. Um, we've got the best uh, college basketball television contract in the country. I think we're the only conference that can say every one of our games are on national TV. Uh, so what does that look like? What does a next TV contract look like in a streaming world uh, once we get past 25? That's hard to predict, but I think in the next year, we'll get more serious about um, engaging uh, both Fox and, and other part, you know, potential partners. Uh, and then that's where you probably have the conversation at least about expansion. And, and here's how I would frame potential expansion. You know, you know, it's a lot of fun to just talk about schools and, and uh, you know, I don't want to get into that because it's uh, to some degree uh, uh, irresponsible to to start throwing names out there. As Are you much sure you don't it, want to start talking about Gonzaga in Kansas yeah. real quick? I mean, come as, on. as much fun as it would be. But here's how I would frame it is if we're getting a set amount from Fox, uh, our broadcast partner right now, and you divide that by the 11 schools, you know, one of your first uh, equations has to be um, how much more money would school number 12 or 13 or 14 bring to the table? And, and you have to have that conversation with potential television partners. And if, if 
those potential schools make the slice of pie that that each school that's in the league uh, gets let to be less or smaller. Why why do you continue to have the conversation? Would be one of my questions. Now, if if people are expanding the pie. You know that's that's a different uh, that's a different conversation. I'm not saying it's the only one, but uh, it certainly helps drive the decision uh, when, as we uh, are looking at different options. I certainly don't want to bring up specific schools, but <laughs> as you look at the way the uh, college athletics in general are shifting, and you see a USC and a UCLA leave for the Big Ten, and now geography makes no sense at all in terms of how we're doing this stuff. How big of a deal is that from a Big East perspective? I mean, obviously, you just pointed to the money figure, so that'll play a role in it. If it's going to cost tons of money to travel out to those schools now and you're not bringing enough back in, it probably doesn't make sense. But just from the philosophical standpoint, is there huge pause at the idea of adding a school from out west or outside the the geographic footprint here? You know, we've we've talked about any range of schools uh, uh Rick, but again, it's been what I would just call, um, uh, you know, idle conversation. I mean, what we have spent time uh, talking about is, you know, what are the major pillars that we would make a decision around? Uh, And, uh, you know, the values of the conference, the the priority of basketball, as you can imagine, um, uh, the logistics, you mentioned that, and that's, that's one where Look, USC and UCLA are great institutions. I, I don't question that. And I think you can, uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised at that in the sense that it just shows how much football is driving, uh, you know, so many of the, the conversations. Because you can manage, what is it, three time zones uh, for uh, for football, but for, for every other sport they've got, boy, what a competitive disadvantage uh, those, those two institutions are, are put at right now. So, um, it's going to be really interesting to see, I, I think long-term where, uh, where things are tracking, but, um, for us, at least where we are right now, since our, our contract doesn't, um, uh, expire until the end of the 25 season, we're really at a preparation stage right now. One last thought on this, if you don't yeah. mind that, My take has been that since they came up with the expanded college football playoff format where the power conferences are going to be guaranteed at least one spot, essentially, I I feel like that's going to stabilize the the realignment for the time being, at least for a little bit. Do you see it that way or do you think it's it's anybody's guess still and we could be in for major upheaval? No, I, I agree with you, Rick. Um, I, I think, uh, uh, and and I say that not knowing anything more than what you do and, and reading the same things that you read, but I agree that going to a 12, uh, 12 team playoff, it, it does help stabilize the, uh, the power five. I think these next two TV contracts, uh, which I think uh, will be the Pac-12 and Big 12 in that order, that also uh, will be uh, very telling, I think, for uh, long-term stability. Awesome. Well, Greg, you've been really generous with your time here. I always appreciate getting the chance to chat with you. I know Xavier fans will be happy to hear from you. Thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks, Rick. We'll see you in Centa soon.